you can think of basically as like three general carbon sinks, the atmosphere, the oceans, and the soils. And, and of those three, two of those are maxed out, and that's the, the atmosphere and the oceans. And much of that carbon came from the soil. You know, regenerative agriculture is really is taking what used to be in the soil, carbon, and return it back to the soil. It's a very simple concept, but ironically is ignored by virtually all major environmental organizations and much of the climate movement. At the COP21 talk in Paris, soils and oceans, largest carbon sinks in the world, were not even on the agenda, and hopefully that will change. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and my co-host, Vernice Miller-Travis, is on assignment today. Today, we're going to talk about how changing the choices you make about what you eat is probably the single most important thing you can do to fight climate change and save the planet. Our guest today is John Rulak. John is the founder and CEO of Nativa, the world's leading organic superfoods brand of hemp, coconut, chaya, and red palm. Founded in 1999 and dedicated to nourishing people on the planet, Nativa has been named one of Inc. Magazine's fastest growing companies in America for seven years in a row. John is also a tireless advocate for regenerative agriculture, and he's authored numerous articles and publications on the subject and four books that together have sold more than a million copies. John, welcome. It's great to have you here today. Good to be here, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. So, John, tell us a little bit about your background and how you became so passionate about the environment and regenerative agriculture. Well, as, as a, a young boy, I grew up in Pasadena, just uh, outside of uh, Los Angeles. In the 1960s, it was a very smoggy, one of the worst polluted air quality zones in, in the country. It was definitely not the funnest to breathe air in uh, the L.A. basin in the 60s. But I also had the rare privilege of spending my summers in uh, very remote islands in the Pacific Northwest where my family, we would vacation with no running water, no electricity, and so that contrast between being in a very kind of more remote and nature and its finest and being around the oceans and, and trees and then contrasted with that really helped kind of set the stage, I think, for my world outlook on, on how we see the world. And then also at age 21, they, an unidentified truck driver dumped nuclear waste at my house, nine miles from my house. And when I was growing up in Altadena and when I was 21, and that kind of set my direction to learn, like, how, how can we live on this earth without destroying it? And, uh, how can we conserve our resources to improve quality of life? And, uh, so I've been on that journey uh, ever since. In their recent book, The New Grand Strategy, Joel Macauer and Puck Mickleby talk about the need for the demand for regenerative agriculture and how that such a, plays such an important role in the future of a sustainable society. Can you 
tell us, uh, what is regenerative agriculture? Maybe just define for the audience what that term means. Well, people might have heard of, let's say, sustainable agriculture, and the idea of sustain is, is to, if a farmer takes over, you know, farming his land, he might try to sustain the soil quality. And regenerative, kind of what it means to regenerate. So, for example, someone who has a farm maybe have, let's say, 3% organic matter in their soil, which a lot of farms have is not too good. So you can regenerate that soil and build topsoil, improve the quality of the soil, increase habitat, wildlife habitat. And it does that by basically through photosynthesis, sequestering carbon, which you can think of basically as like three general carbon sinks, the atmosphere, the oceans, and the soils. And, and of those three, two of those are maxed out. And that's the, the atmosphere and the oceans. And much of that carbon came from the soil. You know, regenerative agriculture is really the principles is taking what used to be in the soil, carbon, and returning it back to the soil. It's a very simple concept, but ironically is is ignored by virtually all major environmental organizations and much of the climate movement. Ironically, at the COP21 talk in Paris, that soils and oceans were not even on the agenda. The largest carbon sinks in the world were not even on the agenda. And hopefully that will change. I actually wrote an article in EcoWatch about that. And it's I think it's part of our fixation with technology. We're so into like that wind and solar will carry the day or some new battery technology. And these are obviously important. We need to we need to stop burning coal and, and investing in renewables. But equally important is to use regenerative agriculture through a variety of practices such as composting, holistic grazing, which is a more intelligent way to raise animals versus putting them in a pen and cages. Growing more diverse crops, cover crops, and uh, the like can really help create more income for the farmers, reduce our inputs, and create a better quality of life for our communities and our globe. Yeah, so let's let's break this down a little bit. So regenerative agriculture, you're saying, is it's it's not just a, a form of agriculture that's going to produce less carbon. It's actually going to take carbon out of the atmosphere and and put it back into the soils. Correct. Which is, I, I, you know, I've heard you talk, and can you explain to our audience why that's so important? You know, that we're on this track now where we're trying to reduce the creation of carbon, but that's not going to get us all the way where we need to get to, correct? Yeah. What I like to say is that if you name Bill McKibben, the founder of 350.org, if he was the benevolent dictator in the world today, and he could wave a magic wand, and he could triple solar production and create tax credits and everybody could be driving hybrid cars faster than anybody could imagine. If he did all of that and we didn't deal with agriculture, the planet will not be biologically productive to support a life as we know it here in the next decades. So even if we could go beyond what those who promote green energy are suggesting, that's just literally not enough. And so, yes, we need to reduce the amount of carbon going into the atmosphere. That's important. But the job, the challenge is how do we come back to 300 parts per million, 350 parts per million? And the only viable solution is to, one, reduce what we're putting into the atmosphere. But secondly, is to return it back using photosynthesis, which has 500 million years of R&D. And we know how to do it. We just need to get busy with it and return that carbon back to where it belongs, literally under our feet. It's a very simple concept, and the French government has a program called 4-1000 they're advocating. And ironically, there was 50 countries there in Paris, and they all announcing it. And guess what? One country was conspicuous absent at that press conference. I assume it's the United States, huh? Correct, yes. And the reason for that, 
the 600-pound gorilla is is that large agrochemical companies such as DuPont, such as Monsanto, they do not want people to understand what this current form of agriculture, this chemically intensive agriculture is doing to our soils, to our ecology, and so they use their political influence. And so that's why every time we buy food that comes from Monsanto's supply chain, whether it's GMO crops or crops sprayed with Roundup, we're essentially voting for a future that is very dismal for life on, on planet as we know it. So we really vote three times a day with our food choices. Yeah, I think that that's a critically important thing that is missing in the conversation about climate change. I think folks just really don't understand the degree to which agriculture and the food choices they make are impacting. Biking rather than driving a car is great, but it's it's just not enough. So Correct. One of the arguments that you'll hear from folks about big agriculture is we need big agriculture. We, we have a growing population on the planet. We can't feed people without modern farming approaches. Uh, what would you say to those folks? Yeah. Well, that's a common argument. First off, the majority of food grown in the world today is from small farmers and mid-sized farmers, not large industrial agriculture. That's food that's feeding people in the U.S. and North America and Europe but that's less than 20% of the population of the planet. The majority of the food is grown by small farmers, which are, tend to be more ecological. Secondly, most of the industrial GMO crops are not actually eaten as food. They're mostly either burned for energy or fed to animals in, in industrial feedlots. So actually, GMO corn and soy are not feeding people in a sense. They're either being burned for fuel for corn or they're being fed to cows, which... When you feed a cow lots of corn, the milk and meat becomes very poor quality. The vitamin E levels drop drastically. The omega-6 and omega-3 ratio is thrown out of balance. So omega-6 soars, omega-3 drops in non-pasture meat milk. And so when you, when you allow the cows to be on the grasslands, which is what they uh, have been developed over, over millennial, not only does it reduce the climate issue, but the leading cause of health problems today is inflammation. And high blood pressure is all tied in that heart disease. And that's from eating not only high levels of sugar, but poor levels of fats. So imagine how carbon intensive a heart attack is and poor health. So regenerative agriculture not only deals with climate change, it also deals with health care. It also deals with finance because health care is a huge expense for us. So lots of good things in, in regenerative agriculture. And the other thing is, is that industrial agriculture has huge unintended consequences all the soil erosion. So if big agriculture says, oh yeah, we need, we need industrial agriculture to feed the world. Well, if you're going to feed the world, how are you going to do that when industrial agriculture has been responsible for reducing 50% of the topsoil in the United States and in Canada over the last 50 or 60 years? And we're putting so much carbon through industrial agriculture. You know, for instance, USDA reports that like 10, 9 to 13% of agriculture contributes to climate change when we all know it's the conservative number is really like 25 and some people say it's even more. All that carbon goes into the atmosphere and then it falls down into the oceans. And what happens when all that carbon from this industrial agricultural system and the farmers and ranchers are, they're not the, they're not the problem here. They, they're looking for some solutions and there's actually a lot of good movement in that, in that area. But what happens when all that carbon goes in the atmosphere from this industrialized fossil pesticide laden system? What happens at the oceans? What's happening right now? And they're acidifying, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the number one supply of oxygen in the world today? 
I would assume the ocean. Oceans. I'll give you an analogy that I share when I do presentations is imagine if you were as using like Bucky Fuller, the great environmental designer and visionary. He says, imagine if, if we were on a spaceship flying through space. Okay. And, and the earth is a spaceship and we are flying through space. And imagine if someone came to you and said, the way we're, we're producing food on this spaceship is impacting and degrading our oxygen systems. What would you do? Yeah. You'd have to stop. Producing the food that way, right? Yeah, because you're going to run out of oxygen. Right. And so industrial agriculture, not only won't even feed the people, but industrial agriculture will be responsible, along with the petrochemical energy industry, for our current pathway, which, in my view, will result in 90% of all species on the planet disappearing by 2060 on the planet. 2060, it's less than 50 years away. And the reason being is that all that carbon is going into the oceans and the oceans can no longer absorb this. And so the oceans are now having impacts and effects that what happens to biological systems. So, for instance, you're seeing these great algae blooms. There was an algae bloom last summer, a year ago last summer, when it was 10 times larger than the state of California, where it was just biologically devoid of life. A lot of issues, uh, sea lions are washing up dead in California. They don't have access to, to enough food. They're starving. So oceans are getting hotter. Oceans are getting acidifying. And the National Geographic, that radical publication, said by 2046, there won't be a fish in the ocean left that, that can survive. And so if we have no fish in the, in the sea and no whales and no dolphins, and the plankton is basically the acid is they're slowly dissolving. They can't produce the shells. And the oceans are actually, they're actually not acidic. They're actually alkaline moving towards acidity. And they've, they've, they've changed acidification towards the acidification scale by 0.1%, which actually seems very small, but it's very impactful. It's about 30% increase in acidity. So literally, if we continue on our path of concentrated animal feedlots, of using nitrogen fertilizers, which release vast amounts of nitric oxide, and relying on just a handful of crops for world production, rice, corn, soya, wheat, sugar, and canola. These are the crops that we're relying on. There's literally tens of thousands of crops, and the key thing in nature is we need to create diversity. When we create, we have brittle systems now that, that are much more susceptible to pests and much more susceptible to health issues and destruction of the soil. So we need to return to diversity. And, and the good news is more and more people are, are interested in this issue. More farmers are, are participating in this, this soil regeneration movement. Back to this, you know, to the, to this oceans. You published an article last year that called Starbucks the destroyer of the sea. What were you trying to get to? What's the, what's the point of that? Yeah. I mean, it's very simply as when you go into Starbucks, they're really a dairy company more than selling coffee. They sell a lot more dairy than coffee in a lot of ways when you, when you buy a latte. There's a lot more milk in it than coffee beans used. And so Starbucks buys from the largest, worst industrial dairy companies in the world, which happen to be what controls dairy in, in the United States. And so these are where the cows are being fed GMO corn and soybeans and GMOs spraying Roundup, a lot of chemical fertilizers, and all of that embedded energy and carbon is being released into the atmosphere and then falling into the oceans. So when you buy a Starbucks latte, you are contributing. You are saying, yes, 
I support an agricultural system that wants to put massive amounts of carbon into the atmosphere, that puts massive amounts of nitrogen fertilizer going down the Mississippi and running off and creating dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico that sprays massive amounts of herbicides, pesticides, Roundup and, and other, other chemicals that are now in our rainwater, that are now in our, that are now in when every, when a baby is born, it's in their blood. Uh, it's in the mother's placenta and also every GMO seed that is grown for this industrial agriculture is dipped in a toxic pesticide called neonix. It's, it's manufactured by Syngenta and Bayer. And these neonix are a class that are 10,000 times more toxic than Roundup, which has been linked to cancer. And what's happening is, is when the bees, uh, these, these, uh, when it's, they, the reason why they dip it in these seeds, it's got like this bluish green kind of iridescent color, and it supposedly helps the seed, uh, be less attacked by other insects, uh, or other soil microorganisms. But organic farmers and most farmers never do this. It's just kind of Monsanto's way of kind of industrializing the process. And then it expresses itself through the genes of the plant. And then in the morning dew on the, on the GMO corn crop, the bees come and sip the, the dew on these corn crops, and then they start getting this 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 toxic pesticides. It was been banned in, in Europe, and it's not banned in the United States. And when they when they banned it in Europe, they saw the bee population start to come back in in, in France. So Starbucks and McDonald's and these other large industrial food systems are essentially when we purchase those products, we're voting for a system that's not regenerative. It doesn't support life. It supports a way of, of farming that just is, is antithesis to what we all want to create uh, a healthier, more vibrant world. They put seven varieties of bees on the endangered species list. So this pollinator problem and the bee problem is just an enormous, enormous problem. Yes, a bumblebee is, is one of them. And as Chief Seattle said, the life is like a web of life. And for some reason, we seem so attached to technology, to the latest iPhone and and, and, uh, you know, delivery what we want via Amazon or Google within, you know, within the same day delivery, instant gratification and all this technology and, and, uh, things. But the technology of nature, which is infinitely, in my view, a higher form of technology than anything man has created, we somehow take for granted. And I think in some ways, America is the, the most illiterate, environmentally aware society that's ever walked on this planet we just there's something about us we've just seemed to forgotten and there's a lot of people who care concern but large swaths of the population just assume that food grows and you know you just go to the, the supermarket and you get food there and that you know when you go to a restaurant it's all just going to show up and and these are assumptions that are that may be may be tested in the coming decades and uh, we, you know, we have a short window to shift the way we look at the world and to realize that we need to honor nature. And when we honor nature, we honor people. This is not about tree huggers and disrespecting people. We all live in this ecosystem. We depend on, on nature and forests and healthy soils and healthy foods. And um, there's lots of, lots of interesting projects. There's a group in L.A. called Kiss the Ground that's working on a film called Kiss the Ground. That uh, was a film idea actually I came up with uh, a while back. Uh, about a year and a half ago, there's Re uh, Regeneration International, there's the Carbon Underground, there's a conference that I've helped produce called Soil Not Oil, and so there's a lot of good good resources out there on the subject. I encourage people to learn more about it. So, Johnny, I, I know we have a limited amount of time, and there are a couple 
more topics I wanted to touch base on. Tell us about your company, Nativa. You describe it as an NGO disguised as a brand that makes money. What, what is Nativa and uh, how did you get it started? In 1999, I started with uh, 500 hemp bars. We're based in uh, in Northern California and Richmond, California. We're, we have a, 120 employees, and we, we produce a range of organic, what I call superfoods or nutrient-dense plant foods from, from based on coconut, hemp, chia, and red palm. We've been at Inc. Magazine, fastest-growing companies for now for eight years. We just got our eighth, eighth year on that. All of our products are organic, non-GMO, vegan, and non-gluten. Some of our latest new products, we've created a an organic vegan version of Nutella with 40% less sugar. That's doing quite well. Uh, we also have an organic uh, plant protein product. You know, we sell hemp seeds and chia seeds. And one of the things we do is we donate 1% of our sales to groups that promote sustainable agriculture. So we've given away $3.6 million to date as a company. Uh, which I'm probably one of the most proud things I've, we've done. We've, for instance, we've, we're putting a fruit tree orchard every public school here in the city of Richmond, California, here in the Bay Area, and we also donated 100,000 coconut trees to farmers in the Philippines. That's a money tree there in the Philippines. Uh, we're pioneering things such as red palm oil, which is a, grown in Ecuador, not to be in the same category as what the forests are destroying, growing palm in, in the Southeast Asia. And uh, we've also been popularizing this regenerative agriculture, help sponsor and, and help kind of produce the uh, Soil Not Oil Conference that's held in the Bay Area every year, so people can learn more about that. Our big mission is to revolutionize the way the world eats. Fantastic. So what do we need to do as a society to ramp up restorative agriculture? What levers need to be pushed? What changes need to happen? I think the biggest thing is in Washington, D.C., we need to change the policy. The simplest way would be, say, that 50% of all farm subsidies will go to farmers if they practice some sort of form of regenerative agriculture to increase carbon uh, storage in the soil. So, for instance, doing cover crops, etc., diversifying crop rotations. I think that would be one thing. We need to educate people. We need to change where you're locally, work with your congressperson. But the good news is ranchers are, are love this uh, regenerative agriculture. Republicans love this. But industrial agriculture isn't going to go down easy, so they're they're fighting for this fighting against it because they, they want to keep the subsidies and they want to keep on this corn, soybean, petrochemical kick that they're on. And also, never eat meat unless you know how it's raised and uh, meat that's that has access to the pasture and not is not forced into cages, which is worse than a coal-burning power plant like Harris Ranch when you drive up Highway 5. So encourage people to uh, learn more about the food that they eat and then share stuff on social media. The survival of the planet may be uh, who, who creates the best memes on, on what we need to do for uh, for the future. So it's kind of ironic. So And there, there is a bill in uh, California for carbon farming, and so that got passed recently, very small funding, $7.5 million. We also need to promote the buffalo. I was just speaking some, with some buffalo advocates in the Lakota Reservation. Tonka Bar is a, is a product that company can support. Uh, Dr. Bronner's along um, with Nativa are active in this sector as well. That's a great company. And so find out more about the products you eat and, and learn more uh, so we can uh, be more involved and create the future that we want. Uh, um, but I think everybody needs to prepare that we're, there is kind of a crash landing that's coming, you know, with, with our, with our systems. I don't think that's a, that's a scare tactic anymore. I think we need to be prepared. What's going to happen as, 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 as the biological systems start, start getting degraded. So we need to, we need to prepare for that and also start working on the solutions at the same time. So two leverage points. Federal policy subsidies, which I think people would be shocked to know how much of the income of farmers in this country comes from government subsidies. But so you're saying uh, leverage that and then uh, make better choices. Every one of our listeners needs to make better choices about 
where their food comes from, what they're eating and understanding what the, the carbon footprint of that real carbon footprint of that food is. Yes, excellent. And there's one other thing that I'm very excited about, and that is the potential for switching people from who are fishermen to being ocean farmers and kelp farmers instead of fishermen. Crops like kelp, which used to be uh, vast ocean areas of, of kelp on the, in the West Coast when the Spanish and the, and the Russians came here, and kelp can sequester six times as much or five times as much carbon per uh, crop versus the land crops. So it's got a, it's got a benefit there, and it's got a- applications for food, fuel, and, and fiber and feed. A lot of interesting applications around kelp. And so there's some group that's called uh, Green Wave that's working in, in Rhode Island, and they're working to put up the first uh, kelp facility in Santa Barbara. So the oceans, you know, we're, a, we're an ocean planet, not a land planet, and so we could be growing huge amounts of, of that and with, with very minimal impacts to the ocean. It actually creates a diverse ecosystem for the fish, etc. Unfortunately, after we're running out of time, I, I, you know, I'd love to have you back and talk about a, a few other things, but how can folks learn more about Nativa? Where can they buy your products and, and how can they learn more about your work? Yeah, you can visit Nativa, N-U-T-I-V-A dot com. Our products are, uh, you can find it at, at Whole Foods, uh, Sprouts, Target, or some of the uh, retailers. You can also buy it at Nativa.com and other retailers such as Amazon or Thrive Market. And then to follow our, my work, you can go to, to johnrulak.com. Also, you can follow me on my Facebook page as well. And I'm going to be speaking a couple times in the, in the Bay Area here this, this next month. And, uh, but I appreciate you taking the time to invite me on today. Arnold Schwarzenegger announced that he was giving up meat for humanity's sake. How much of an impact do you think things like that have on people? Well, I think it's important. I think plant-based is very important and we need to stop eating so much meat. And so I tell people either, if you're going to be a vegan, that's great. That's going to reduce that. But at the same time, the people are eating meat need to switch from, from meat that's raised in pens and cages and to be pasture-based. And that actually can help and restore grasslands. If you take cows off the grasslands, they can actually degrade further. The, our whole grasslands have, have been evolved from through millions of years and through these grasslands. And so it's an important aspect of, of managing unnatural systems in these herbivores, such as, you know, such as, you know, huge herds of elk and buffalo. So meat does have a role in there. It's not for everybody, but if you are going to eat meat, make sure it's, uh, it's pasture based and, and you can learn more, more about that. Fantastic. John, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for uh, talking and uh, hope I wish everybody a healthy and vibrant future. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to you joining us next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.